I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. beginning the end it's a story but that's why i'm here to tell you stories so where to start when you're in the middle of a story it isn't a story at all but only a confusion a dark roaring a blindness a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood like a house in a whirlwind or or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. is Sylvain Nouvelle. He's taught linguistics in India, worked as a software engineer in Montreal, where he lives. 
but he wishes that he was an astronaut. He's the author of numerous science fiction novels, most recently, A History of What Comes Next and Until the Last of Me, books one and two of the Take Us to the Stars series, a story of aliens who come to Earth 3,000 years ago with opposing missions, which take us on a fascinating romp through 3,000 years of powerful women who helped shape human history. Sylvain, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. I really, really enjoyed these books. I read both of them, and I rarely get to do reading like this, because generally, or almost all, always, I'm doing nonfiction interviews. So it's always a treat to, uh, to get to sort of take a vacation from that. And that's what this was like for me. That's great. Thank you. There are, though, a lot of uh, real life historical events in those books. So some of it is nonfiction. Absolutely. And I love history. I absolutely love history. I love historical fiction and and also love science. As a kid, I I thought I would be or, or at least I, I wanted to be a, a mathematician and an astronomer. So I uh, I could relate to a lot of this and enjoy a lot of this. Thank you. That's great. I wanted to be a mathematician as well. Yeah, it's really clear that uh, you have a great love for science and math and history as well. I love research. I have a bit of an academic background, so I guess it comes with the territory, but uh, I could I enjoy the research part as much as I enjoy the writing. So. Yeah, that's that's something I definitely want to talk about because you wrote somewhere in the book that the writing of these books was such an enjoyable experience or was so much fun for you. So I'm really curious, what what were the elements of this writing that uh, you enjoyed so much? Just learning about things, uh, you know, write what you know. We've heard that a, a couple of times, but I, I guess I, in some ways, I wish I could. You hear, you, you see those, uh, I don't know, former real-life detectives writing police stories and and so on, and then astronauts writing astronaut stories. And I, I'm a linguist by trade, which is sort of inherently boring. So I write about things that I want to know, uh, and it's fun because I get to learn a lot of things. But it's so much work. I knew, like these books. So the first book centers around the early days of the space race. So I didn't know the history. I didn't know the people. I didn't know the physics behind it. I didn't know anything. Uh, so I had to learn from scratch. And it's been like that for every book that I've written so far. But it's it's a lot of fun. I, I tend to read weird things to begin with. I mean, the idea for this came out of nowhere, just from reading strange, weird, scientific facts. So the protagonist of this story is an alien woman named Mia, who is the 100th generation of the original woman who came to Earth around 3,000 years ago, who lives by a set of rules that have been handed down throughout that time. Always run, never fight, preserve the knowledge, survive at all cost, and take them to the stars. So this this theme of taking them to the stars um, is like the core mission that these women have here on Earth. And you you talked about how the first book begins with the early phase of the space race. Could you talk about that? And I know that we have to avoid giving away too much, but uh, talk about as much as you feel is appropriate. Yeah, uh, so the series, Take Him to the Stars, follows, as you said, a hundred generations of really badass mothers and daughters who happen to be all genetically identical. And they have a goal to take us to the stars so we can escape the apocalypse, more or less. 
and they've been nudging us, messing with history and, and nudging us towards that goal for, for 3,000 years, uh, which sort of involved astronomy from a time when people didn't even know what a star was. Uh, so we get flashbacks to this era here and then from, you know, uh, 100 years ago, 300 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. Uh, but the main characters in the first book, History of What Comes Next, are the uh, 99th generation of uh, of these mothers and daughters. And they participate. They, they sort of have a role in setting up what will become a race uh, to space between the Soviet Union and the United States. Uh, by the time we get to the second book, and Mia is now the mother until the last of me, we're in the 70s and 80s, and uh, we're taking a, a closer look at the Voyager program, which sent like two twin probes to uh, visit the outer planets and then escape the, the solar system. So the women are actually playing both sides of the space race in order to actually generate a competition that will motivate humanity to actually accelerate this this uh, space program, this space race. Oh yeah, they couldn't care less about politics and who gets there first. They just want people to get there. Uh, and so they just encourage the, this competition uh, and then sort of like work as hard as they can to to make it actually happen. And at the same time that they're doing this, they're also throughout this, 3,000 year period, they've been being hunted by men who also came from the same distant world. Tell us about that. Yeah, uh, they call them uh, the tracker. Uh, the women call themselves the Kipsu. And uh, for 3,000 years, the tracker has been hunting them. He's looking for something from them. Uh, we don't really know what it is in the, until the very end of the, of the first book. And they, well, they have very different goals. Uh, wh why that is, we'll learn in the third book, because in the third book, we get to uh, see them at the very beginning. We get to see the first ones who came to Earth. Uh, but yeah, and they've been, they've been chasing him and killing him for, for 100 generations. And so half of the Kipsu's life is, is to make science move forward so we can travel to other star systems. And the other half is just surviving, running away from these apparently mad men. And there's a kind of a, a superhero, supervillain kind of dynamic going on in here, because each of them have kind of super strength, but they also have kind of hyper-violent instincts that kick in under certain circumstances. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, they wherever they come from, they they come from a place where, uh, well, I guess violence is is sort of an inherent trait, and uh, they work pretty hard at at controlling it. But they're not like heroes in the traditional sense. I mean, the the good guys in these books are, well, mostly good, but also slightly homicidal at times, and it's something they they struggle with. In the first installment. They're sort of opposed at, at more as good guys, bad guys, because we don't really know the motivations behind why those men are, are chasing him and killing him. Uh, by the time we get to book two, we, we get to delve a little bit into their life a little more and understand, at least in part, why they're doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But no one in there is super clean and heroic. They're all eh, slightly dangerous. Now, we never find out how they got here and particulars like that. And at one point while preparing for this interview, I reflected back on the movie Starman. Yeah. Jeff Bridges where. The little marbles. Yeah. An alien life form lands on the earth in a non-corporeal form and uses a bit of DNA to clone himself in, or themselves into a, a human form. And I just thought that that device was particularly interesting and very thoughtful. And um, one wonderful thing about the way you wrote this book is you left a lot of things open-ended so that we could sort of imagine and play our imaginations into aspects of the story as it unfolded. 
one of the particularities of, of what it means to be a Kipsu is you, you have these rules, there's six of them that you live by, and you have this goal to take us to the stars. But uh, you have absolutely no idea why you made the choice to do that, <laughs> because they lost, you don't even know what they are. They lost that knowledge uh, a couple thousand years ago in the uh, during the 11th generation. And so they struggle with the goal that they've set themselves because it's a sacrifice. You have a target on your back. You know, some people are hunting you all the time and, and everything you do, you do for others, more or less. And you do for the hundred generations that came before you. And so the, that adds to the struggle of, of every time a new generation of these women are born, they reach an age at some point where they, you know, they want to define their, their sense of self, become their own person. Uh, each of us at some point has said, you know, I'm not going to turn it into my parents. And then we all do. But it, it takes a different meaning when you're a genetic copy of your mom. And you know, the idea of a, you know, a family, a generational family business. Uh, you know, if you grow up on a farm and when you're, you get older, you don't want to work on the farm. Well, there's this sense of betrayal because like four generations of, of or three uh, of your family have worked really hard and made sacrifices so you could have the farm at some point and you could give it to your to your children. And giving that up is is a difficult choice. Well, you imagine that it's a hundred generations and not three or four, and that the fate of humanity is at stake. And yet, you know, some of them don't really want to to do that, and so and they and they struggle with it. Uh, yeah. It's it's a, it's a difficult life, that of the Kipsu. So there's a passage that I thought I'd have you read from uh, the middle of page 102 that that gives us a just a a bit of a sense of of what at least one of those women was experiencing. Yeah, it's. Uh... It's in the second book, and uh, as I said, they, they, you know, they lost the knowledge, all the knowledge at, at some point, and so there's a lot of blanks for them to fill, and it sort of instills a lot of doubt in, in at least some of them. And I don't want to spoil anything, but they come across something that may or may not have belonged to an earlier iteration of, uh, of the Kipsu, one that actually knew everything. And so we have Mia, the, the mother, uh, talking to her daughter, Lola. And she says, close your eyes. You're all alone in a barren field. The heat is pressing on you like a ton of bricks. You look around. You can't see her yet. But if you listen carefully, you'll know she's coming. You can hear the hooves of her horse stomping the ground in the distance. The sound gets louder and louder. You try to look, but the sun is behind her. She gets closer. It was too bright a second ago, but you can see her now. Dark hair blowing across her face, her skin and will hardened by the elements. She stops right in front of you. It takes nerve just to meet her gaze. Her brown eyes pierce into your soul and yours into hers. The rush hits you like a freight train, and for an instant, you understand. Her horse snickers, restless. She keeps reining it in until she finally lets it run wild. The feeling leaves with her, nearly tears your heart out. You try to catch her. You know you won't, but you try anyway until your lungs give out and your legs fold like paper. You watch as she rides hard into the steps and fades into the horizon. And when she's gone, all you want is to feel that strength again. You do anything for one more second of it. You try to hold on to the memory to remember the completeness you felt when you held the knowledge you and I have been missing all our lives. You feel it disappear like sand running through your hands until you're not sure any of it was ever real. When I got to that passage, that really hit me as such a powerful expression of what they were going through, that until that moment, I had been carried along on this journey, but then all of a sudden I had this, this deeply felt emotional connection to their experience through that. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a powerful moment for Mia, the mother. Lola, the daughter, is a kid in the 70s, so she's not as impressed as her mother. Yeah, Lola was very rebellious, but apparently that was not that uncommon in those evolving mother-daughter relationships, just as that, of course, is very common with the rest of us humans on this planet. Yeah, they, they would kill to be normal. They actually do kill, but they would metaphorically kill to be normal. It's the thing they wish for the most. Mm -hmm. So in the little bio that came with the book, it said that your wife thinks you have too many toys and that you write about aliens and giant robots as an excuse to build action toys for your son. So I noticed that you referred to the Voyager probes as robots. What is your fascination with robots and how, how does all this science fiction writing and your fascination with robots and also having a young son, how do these things all come together for you? Because it seems as though you've never really lost your, your childhood passions. And I identify with that because I feel like I'm still a kid. I've never really grown up. And I just sense that, that you're still living that kind of a life as well. So I'd love for you to talk about those things and also talk about how you've managed to maintain that. Yeah, uh, I don't know why I'm immature. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let's start with robots. Um, well, they're cool. And one of the things that fascinates me is the border between what we call sentient and, and non-sentient and what we call alive and not alive and, and what, you know, makes one thing on, puts one thing on one side and not on the other. Uh, there's an old movie, uh, it's sort of a documentary, I guess, by Errol Morris from the 80s. It's called Fast, Cheap and Out of Control. And in it, it's a sort of very eclectic cast of real life characters you have a guy cutting you know trees into the shapes of animals and you have some guy studying mole rats and then you have a man from mit who builds little robots and he says you know if i put a little motor four wheels and a battery together and, and i have a thing that just drives forward and hits a wall and if i put a sensor in front of it and i give it one reflex just one it won't when it see when it gets close enough to the wall, it will turn around, and then I have this thing that could run forever because it will never hit a wall again. That's just one sensor and one reflex. And if I put more of them, I can make it search light and whatnot. And it's still just sensory input and just yes or no reflexes. And then he says, you know, the human body receives like tens of thousands of sensory inputs coming from everywhere. And if I put that on a robot, and had, you know, a billion reflexes tied to those things, what what would I get? Would it be close to a human? Would it be, would there be a difference? Would there be, you know, are we, you know, that unique or are we just slightly more complex four-wheel robots with one sensor so we don't run into walls? And I suppose that's in part where my fascination with robots began. My whole life sort of has been a series of strange events that are mostly dictated by the fact that I'm still a kid at heart. And then I had a son. My son, When my son was born, it was sort of weird because now there were two people in the house who were interested in, in these things. And when he was two or three, I offered to build him a, a toy robot because I, I was a, I ran a translation agency, but basically I work on a computer all day and I like to build physical things every now and then. And the, the correct answer to, to, you know, would you like me to build you a toy robot is yes, dad. But my son makes everything a little more complicated. And he asked a billion questions like, you know, what kind of robot? What does it do? Does it fly? Does it have pilots? Can it shoot missiles or whatever? Like, I thought, oh, my God, he wants the backstory to go with the toy. So after he went to bed, I started writing something and then, you know, ideas pop up in my mind. And very quickly, that turned into a novel for adults. I did make a shorter version so I could tell him. But I finished that and I thought it was pretty good. And I thought, you know, well, it, it exists. The book exists, might as well put it out there. And so I, I wrote to 56 agents trying to, to get it 
traditionally published and, and they all turned me down. I think only one of them read the whole thing. So I thought, you know, I, whatever, it's good. I have a good job and I'll self-publish and that'll give me an excuse, you know, sell 20 copies and that'll give me an excuse to write book two. But I'm a bit of a perfectionist and so I wanted the cover to look like a real book. So I sent it to a to a literary magazine for a review in the US, you know, hoping to quote it out of context and put it on the cover, you know, like uh, dot 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 book or something. And they loved it. And they put their review online a few months before my then self soon to be self published book was coming out. And suddenly I started getting well, then I got one email from a Hollywood producer interested in reading it and then another and another maybe five of them in one week. And one of them called me back and said, I really love it. I want to help you. I think you need a movie agent. I know um, a guy at Creative Artist Agency, which just happens to be the biggest representation agency in, in the world. Uh, I'd like you to talk to him. So back then, I think it's funny, you know, nothing will come of it, but it's just uh, spices up the week a little bit. So I talked to this agent at Creative Artist Agency, and he says, you know, I love your book. I'd love to represent it. I said, what do I do? He said, well, if you say yes, I'll be your agent. Okay, yes. So I hang up, tell my wife I have an agent at Creative Artist Agency, and we're laughing because, of course, nothing will come of that. So about a week later, he calls me back and says, we have an offer from a major studio. And I'm like, what? And he says, by the way, are you hell bent on self-publishing? Because I know this book agent in New York, the agency represents John Grisham and maybe you could talk to him. So, all right. So I talked to this book agent in New York and he says, love your book, would love to represent it. I said, what do I do? He said, you say, yes. All right, yes. So I hang up, tell my wife, <laughs> I have a movie deal and a book agent in New York. Another week, passes and the book agent calls me back and says your book is auctioning and four of the major five publishers are at the table and basically within a month i went from you know i wrote a book for fun basically as a backstory for a toy to i have a movie deal and a three book deal with a major publishing house and ever since it's been it's been my life i write about aliens and giant robots for a living which is the craziest but coolest thing ever <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how that all evolved from uh, building a robot and having a conversation about it with your son. Yeah, I did get to build it. It didn't work <laughs> as I planned, but that was it was fun. I guess uh, the universe had other plans for that that whole thing. Yeah, basically my whole life is the universe had other plans. You know, some people have had this like goal, that, you know, from childhood and they just never stop pursuing it and, and at some point it happens i i've gone with the flow a lot and it took me to strange places and i've experienced a lot of things but i couldn't ask for a better conclusion This is Sylvain Nouvelle. He's the author of these books that we've been talking about, A History of What Comes Next and Until the Last of Me, books one and two of the Take Us to the Stars series. Continuing with the robot theme, one of the characters in the book is actually Voyager 2, which you follow through the solar system. And there's also another satellite that you write about 
that was sent up to collect data about the ozone hole and how that satellite actually ignored the ozone hole data and set that whole investigation back several years. Could you put that into context and why they were featured in the story the way that you did? Yeah. The Voyager probes are are sort of very central to book two for a bunch of reasons. Part of the, the plot revolves around it, but I also tried at least or wanted the life story of, of Mia and her daughter Lola to somehow parallel the steps or the, the Voyager mission. And so they both happen in parallel and, you know, the struggles sort of happen at the same time. And when you read about the encounters with the other planets, with the Voyager Voyager 2, it's really, really hard not to uh, anthropomorphize the probe, which I suppose I do a little. But I, I was trying to, to, yeah, to set a parallel between that scientific mission and the very human struggle that Mia and Lola were, were going through. Through the whole series, there's always sort of a part of the story that revolves around the environment, uh, the survival of the planet. So from, you know, greenhouse gases and, and the discoveries that led to uh, to our understanding of how it works now, they, they participate in that as well. And in book two, we talk about the ozone layer a little bit because it's set in the 80s and that was the thing back then. It had nothing to do with global warming. People were worried about skin cancer. But it was sort of fa- the, the Nimbus 7, I think that's the name of the satellite story, is fascinating because you have these scientists, forget their names, I think one of them is Molina. They published this paper that says that CFCs will react in the atmosphere and produce chlorine, which will eat away at the ozone layer. And so people start working on that because it's groundbreaking. And everyone sort of agrees, even the government, that something bad is happening and that the ozone layer is, is probably dissipating in some places. And people are working on this, but they want to observe it. So they send the satellite to, among other things, to, to measure that. And boom, nothing. No depletion, no hole, no nothing. And people are astonished. And then it gets weird because how do you keep publishing and working on something if the thing that's up there looking at it for real says there's no hole in the ozone layer? Well, turns out the satellite was purposely ignoring the data that showed ozone depletion. And it sounds stupid, but it's not. If you put a thermometer in front of your house and you record the data every day, you know, it's going to read, I don't know, 50 degrees, 60 degrees, 50 degrees, 55 degrees, 800 degrees, 60 degrees, 60 degrees. Now, it's possible, you know, that the Earth was melting on Wednesday, but chances are that that 800-degree reading you got is because there was a welder outside your house or, you know, something. Uh, So you just ignore the outliers. You just ignore data that falls out of what you think is a reasonable range. And no one had ever measured ozone levels that low before. So satellite was just ignoring it because it thought it was an anomaly. And yeah, it took a little while before this was actually discovered and and the research kept going on. But uh, I thought it was just a super interesting story. And I tend to, you know, people say if it's not essential to the plot, don't put it in, don't put it in. So I have two reactions to that. Either I'll still put it in or (laughs) I'll make it essential to the plot, one or the other. But I like when I learn cool things, I want other people to learn cool things as well. I mean, in my first book series, there is a interesting knowledge about squirrel behavior, military applications and just very weird things that I thought people had to know. This entire series, uh, Take Him to the Stars, is actually sort of sprung out based on knowledge I gathered out of the blue about a type of fish. So, yeah. Tell us a bit about that fish. I had been wanting, I was going to say since forever, but I've been writing for a living. Well, I, I, I wrote for a living all my life. Like I was a journalist. I wrote training manuals. But in terms of writing fiction, that hasn't been that long. But I wanted to write a story that spanned millennia, and I didn't know how to do it. I wanted characters that could actually you know, be there throughout. And I thought, they need to be immortal, I guess. But I, I didn't want to write immortal characters. You know, no vampires. I just, I don't know. 
I'm going to turn 50 next year. And, the, the you know, I've reached the age where <laughs> you're like, oh, the kids these days type of thing. Uh, so I imagine being like 3000 years old and everyone under like 2500 would annoy the living hell out of me. And so I thought, no, that's not it. And then I read about a fish in Texas. It's called the Amazon molly. They trick males of a species that resembles them, like close enough for the the male of the species to go, mm, a female of my kind. They trick them into mating with them. And then they pass on all their own genes to the offsprings and none of the male genes. So all the fish are genetic copies of each other, all female. There are no male Amazon mollies. And I thought, this is amazing. This is, this is the solution. I can have my cake and eat it too. I can have characters that are essentially the same throughout history because they're genetic copies of each other and they, they'll, they'll be fundamentally some commonality to the way they, they approach everything. But at the same time, they're born at different times. They go through different lives. They're shaped by the world and the events around them. And they, be, they, you know, they develop their own personalities and their own sense of selves. And that was the inspiration behind this entire series. Fish are cool. It's also an amazing thing. Like you try to write science fiction and, and put an element of fantastic in it, like something that either doesn't exist or couldn't or whatever. And, uh, you know, nature turns around and says, hold my beer and comes up with the weirdest thing. Yeah, that was a wonderful anchor for this story. So getting back to the environment, you obviously were concerned about that. You actually share a quote from Carl Sagan that I would like you to read and put into context. Yeah, it's a small part of a quote. It's a quote of a quote. <laughs> uh, I encourage everyone to, to Google it. Just Google for pale blue dot from Carl Sagan. So as I said, the Voyager program takes a center stage in, in this book. And uh, at the very end of, I guess, uh, the solar system part of their mission, just before they turned the camera off, uh, they asked at Carl Sagan's request to turn the probe around and take a picture of our solar system. And, and in it, there's a pixel in there somewhere that is Earth. And from that picture, you know, Sagan sort of starts to reflect on how not only, you know, insignificant, but also very unique we are, but how very insignificant our little quarrels and little wars are in the grand scheme of things. Uh, so the part that I have is, look again at that dot. That's here, that's home, that's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being that ever was lived out their lives here. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot and then he ends with in our obscurity in all this vastness there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves it's a very cool picture <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's a very profound quote yes I, t I end up quoting Carl Sagan a lot in these books. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's a is the, is the quote from him at the beginning. Yep, again yeah. in yeah. book two. Actually, you you put that at the beginning of both books, I think. Uh, it's a different quote. Oh, it's a different quote. Okay. Yep, they're both Sagan quotes, but the one yeah. in this book is billions of years from now, our sun, then a distended red giant star will have reduced earth to a charred cinder but the voyager record will still be largely intact in some other remote region of the milky way galaxy preserving a murmur of an ancient civilization that once flourished perhaps before moving on to greater deeds and other worlds on the distant planet earth it's from murmurs of earth mm -hmm. and getting back to uh Mia and these generations of the Kibsu, their mission is actually very dangerous, not only because of the trackers that are following them, but because they're, they're 
continually putting themselves in very dangerous situations to try and get this space race going and the people that they have to deal with and, and traveling from the U.S. to Russia and dealing with military people. And at the same time, they're also they're involving their daughters in this process. So they're putting their, their own daughters at great risk during this process as well. And it made me think of, because you have a young son and what you see when you look at him and what you think about in the context of the world we live in today and where that takes you. Yeah, uh, well, I'm not sending my son to Germany or Russia to start a space race, that's for sure. Uh, but it, but it's strange being a parent. You look at this, you know, little tiny person and you try to imagine the world they live in. And the last few years have been rough. I mean, I, I uh, they call these books uh, darkly satirical. And uh, I agree with the dark part, especially the, the, there's a lot more levity in the second book. But the first book is dark. It's like really dark. The last book of my previous series is also somewhat dark. And, you know, you see you see everything that is happening from a, an environmental perspective, from a human rights perspective, from from, you know, we're moving backwards at, at incredible speed and, and, and it's scary. And everything is sort of a, it's the same for the Kipsu, I guess, the balance between dealing with the now and, and dealing with the tomorrow. And, and you, how much of the now do you sacrifice so that tomorrow will be better? Uh, I don't know. It's, uh, and you feel powerless at times because there's not much you can do. Yeah, I always wonder what people are thinking or what they're feeling when they choose to bring a child into this crazy world that we're living in these days. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I don't, I, at the same time, and it's super depressing, but I'm, I'm also very optimistic about humanity. You put enough of us together and we eventually end up making the right choice and we're capable of amazing things when, when we put our, our minds to it. I mean, Voyager just, you know, people don't care about the space race will be like, well, it's just a space probe. It's not just a space probe. It's, it's doing the impossible with nothing. You know, there were eight track tapes on this thing recording data. It's from way back then. And it, you know, it's a mission. You have to shoot something the size of a Mini Cooper at a planet that's a bazillion miles away and hit it just right so you can use its gravity and, and get carried along to get to the next planet who just has to be in the right spot, which happens once every 175 years. And we just happen to have the technology right there and then so we could barely do it. But uh, no, we're capable of, of good things. And I mean, we do make progress, even though we walk backwards every now and then, which we seem to be doing right now. But yeah, that's very significant, the circumstances and the technology and the uh, the strategy of getting Voyager to photograph Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, and then what it would take to get a satellite with very limited amount of fuel to actually be able to uh, travel that far, that you had to get the satellite, you know, precisely targeted to the planet in such a way that it would get slingshotted around toward the next planet and then again hit just the right spot where it could then be slingshotted around the next planet and then again to make it to the next planet. And as I was reading it, the way you described it, it seemed like a virtually impossible pipe dream. It is. I mean, they did this with, you know, computers that are basically pocket calculators and, and duct tape. And <laughs> just the, the alignment part is, is insane. You know, it happens every 175 years. That in and of itself is like the plot, the center plot around a, a fantasy epic or a story. There's a, for people who have Netflix, it was on there when I was writing. Uh, it might still be there. There's a documentary called The Farthest about the Voyager program. And it's worth it just to see the 
these people are older now, uh, and they're, but they're talking about it with such emotion because they did the impossible. It was like, a, you know, a good decade of their lives. And yeah, it, it meant something, I think, for humanity, but it meant a hell of a lot more to them. Uh, it's, it's a really great show. I hope it's still there and people can watch it. So in addition to that kind of um, kind of almost far-fetched capabilities that we humans have to uh, to venture out into the unknown and and make things happen that that seem impossible. Um, getting back to the historical part of the story, um, these books take us through these kind of historical flashbacks of powerful women throughout this 3000 year history women who who were directly involved in in helping to shape the evolution of humanity and human history could you talk about some of the women that you wrote about and also why you chose a story with that theme of documenting powerful women in human history between each book section there's a there's a an entracte which is always a flashback to uh, previous generations of kipsus and, and and trackers and that sort of pushed me to learn about early uh, astronomers um and it it's it's fascinating because these people were doing astronomy you know they're looking at stars but they don't know what a star is and so the difficulty is is ridiculously high uh they're also in most times facing a boatload of, of prejudice just by virtue of, of being women and yet they are some of the very central figures in acquiring the knowledge that that makes something like you know the landing on the moon or or sending voyager out or anything like everything we know uh and so and we get to meet uh, uh quite a few of them of these very important women in the history of astronomy. Um, there's a Hypatia of Alexandria, who's sadly better known for the way she died than the way she lived, but she was amazing. And she built astrolabs. I don't know if people know what an astrolab is, but it is the coolest thing <laughs> you, you man, humankind has ever built. Uh, uh, who else? Uh, Aglaonike of Thessaly, who could predict eclipses uh i mean the kind of knowledge you would require to be able to predict that at a time especially for for a woman who wasn't necessarily allowed in the places where you could acquire part of that knowledge uh it's fascinating like they were geniuses uh like generational geniuses once in a thousand year geniuses um who else um I forget that is my brain cloud following catching COVID a, a few weeks ago. I'm still slow, <laughs> but recalling that's, things. Uh -huh, that's okay. Um, so getting back to the realm of science fiction, which is your, at least at this point, is your chosen uh, realm to write in. What is it about science fiction that draws you to it? And is there a relationship there with with your optimism for humanity? Yeah, probably. I mean, I grew up with space stuff, uh, you know, Star Trek, Star Wars. I uh, remember one of my first memories is uh, uh, it's Christmas. I'm running a fever, might be like four, and we didn't have a lot of money, so we didn't get much for, for Christmas. But I got a C-3PO action figure, and I, I, I'd gotten action figures before, but this one was shiny and gold, and I thought it was the greatest thing ever. And then when I was, uh, I don't know, maybe 12, 13, the Return of the Jedi came out, and we saw the, all three movies in a row at the theater, uh, eating popcorn until uh, we felt sick to our stomach. Uh, so I grew up with that. Strangely, I'm more drawn to, in my writing, to more grounded science fiction. Everything I wrote is set in the here and most often in the now or near now. Um, and yeah, I suppose it has to do with my optimism. One of, one of the things 
that gets me emotional in a way that I guess it doesn't probably most people is I get emails from a spot the station. You could you could find it online. And whenever the uh, ISS, the International Space Station, flies over your area of the world, you get an email telling you what time you'll be there. And what that means is on that night, if there are not a billion clouds, the brightest spot in the sky, aside from the moon, uh, is something that humans have built. And if that doesn't inspire people, I don't, I don't know what will. I think there will be generations of astronomers and engineers and who will just grow up to be that because they saw this bright dot moving fairly fast in the sky at night. Uh, yeah, to me, science fiction is about what could be good or bad. Mm -hmm. So as I was getting to the end of the second book, or actually when I got to the end of the second book, I thought, hmm, will there be a third book? And I was trying to figure out if if it would be possible to have a third book or if it would appropriate to have a third book the way the second book ended. So you already spilled the beans on that. Early. Yeah, there is a, a, a third book. Uh, it's also very different. I mean, if you've read both, you, you notice that there are two very different books in many in tone and in message, I guess. Uh, the third book is also incredibly different. And it's also the one part where we actually get to learn about the one, the how it all began. The story itself is set, uh, I think it begins in 1999. But throughout, we, we also get to learn the story of the the very first ones of the the kipsu and, and tracker and and why they're they're fighting each other so when you started writing this did you have a vision of the story before you or did it unfold as you were writing it mm. well i had a vision of the overall story uh the first book was uh I like to to do sort of experiments, constrain myself in some ways. You know how when Twitter started, it was interesting because you had to somehow put any thought in 140 characters or less. So my, my first book series is pretty much 100% unattributed dialogue. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I thought, can't do it, but I guess I did. Uh, and I did did well. And, and so... For history what comes next i wanted the plot to be entirely based on on real events none of the events in the book are not real um and so that meant studying that part of history a lot for months and months and months and months and then to find the right events and and then eventually sort of it it shapes into oh my god that clicks that's the plot that will work it's amazing but now you have years attached to things and so <laughs> you you can't move things around uh if people have watched uh what's it called it's on apple tv and it's a reimagining of the space race where the russians got to the moon first um uh, for all mankind is what it's called it's really good and they there's a lot of similarity between my series and, and that tv show except they like most of the events in the show are, are real but they they move them around and they change little things in them and i i didn't want to move them around if it happened in you know in 69 it happened in 69 and, and so uh, once i the, the first book was very plot driven and so it took forever to to plan and to plot the second book is i would say more character driven so it required I guess a little bit less historical research though the people don't realize it when they read but there's so many little nuggets in there that are you know required a couple hours of reading uh, you know waiting for gas during uh, the gas crisis and, and getting you know getting to fill your tank on odd days because you're your license plate number ends on an odd number. I mean, I researched restaurants where my characters eat, so they order the best food that they serve there. I just, yeah, I can't stop. <laughs> yeah, I, I greatly appreciated the attention to detail, you know, the historical detail, because I, I lived through a lot of it. I mean, I, I was a kid for the uh, 
moon landing. There's a section at the end of both books uh, called Further Reading, where uh, I talk about some of the cool stuff that I discovered and, and sort of tell people what's real and, and what's not, if, if anything. Uh, and uh, if people listen to the audiobook, uh, I'm the one narrating it. Ah. That's my voice acting career right there. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just want to say again how much I enjoyed the book. And, and now, of course, I'm looking forward to the third book. Thank you so much. It should be out next year in April, I think. Okay. So, um, yeah, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks so much. I enjoyed this very much. I hope we get to do it again. I do too. Yeah. After the next book, we should. So All right. We'll stay in deal. touch. Yeah. So my guest has been Sylvain Nouvelle. He's the author of these books that we've been talking about, A History of What Comes Next and Until the Last of Me books one and two of the Take Us to the Stars series. Sylvain, again, thank you so much. Thanks, that was fun. Tomorrow, we, the crew of Apollo 11, are privileged to, to represent the United States in our first attempt to take man to another heavenly body.
was the emerging concept of a new era for mankind on planet Earth. Apollo, in the distant past, had represented dawn. Next up, the moon. There it is. Beautiful. The treasure of the ages. There it is. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. For thousands of years, the moon has made her impression upon men and planet Earth. Now man from planet Earth has made his impression on the moon.